millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Convinced Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're doing the 1973 British horror classic, The Wicker Man. It is time to keep your appointment with The Wicker Man. Which means that we're going to end up talking about paganism, and that topic was suggested via Teresa. Teresa, a big long-term fan of the stuff I've been doing online, probably been following me for 10 years or more on various different platforms. Teresa, you know, lots of love going out towards you. And she suggested this one. I thought, yeah, I can do that. Absolutely. She started with the paganism. Then I had to think, well, what's the pop culture that gets us in there? And it leads to a really fun conversation about a movie that what I find interesting is it's it's very much loved by a certain type of person. So what is The Wicker Man? It is a relatively low-budget film, British movie, starring Edward Woodward, which leads me to the joke, what do you call Edward Woodward with no E's? And the answer is Ewa-woo-wah. <laughs> it always tickles me. But he's a good actor. Edward Woodward and Christopher Lee. So, you know, Christopher Lee's career just, it spanned virtually cinema. He's in a late 1940s colour version of Sherlock Holmes and the Hound of the Baskervilles, and he's a young lord in that one. This was a man who served in World War II. He's of that generation. And yet, he's also a man who's worked with Steven Spielberg, Tim Burton, and, of course, Peter Jackson as Saruman the White, even in the Hobbit prequels to Lord of the Rings. Calling The Hobbit a prequel is kind of not doing it justice, but anyway, obviously Peter Jackson in the early 2000s created the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which just won all the Oscars and made all the money, and then about 10 years later he went back to doing The Hobbit, which, I don't know, maybe I'll do an episode specifically on The Hobbit at some point, but it didn't need three movies, but what's there's pretty good, and you've got Sir Christopher Lee there. Now, in the extended versions of the original Lord of the Rings movies, there's interviews with all the people. There's, you know, whole discs of just behind the scenes. It's If you like the Lord of the Rings and you really do need to 
watch all that stuff as well. You just immerse yourself, lose yourself for days in high quality content. Obviously, if it's not your cup of tea, avoid it like the plague. But in it, there is just one of the most chilling stories around because, weirdly, they decided to cut out the death of Saruman in Return of the King. He just gets locked up in the tower and, and that's it. You don't see anything else. And eventually, in the extended version, you get to see the demise of Saruman and Christopher Lee. And what happens is Grimmel Wormtongue goes up behind him and stabs him, which coincidentally happens in the book, but happens under very different circumstances in the Shire, after the scouring of the Shire. That's a whole thing. But the interesting thing is that Peter Jackson gave him direction to cry out when he stabbed. And Sir Christopher Lee then gave the best stage instructions, the most intimidating stage instructions I've ever heard of, which was simply, but that's not the voice, that's not the sound a man makes when you stab them in the back through the lung. Which opens a whole series of questions, and it's kind of unknown exactly how he did work for the SOE, Special Operations Executive, basically the special services, the spies in World War II, whether or not he actually saw action, I mean, that would strongly imply he did, but that's a whole other thing. So, Sir Christopher Lee, you know, he's played a definitive Bond villain, Scaramanga. He's played a definitive Star Wars villain under George Lucas as Count Dooku. And, you know, he's also played a Lord of the Rings villain. This man just, oh, wow. He's played Nehru, one of the sort of founders in, in the whole sort of like partition of India. You could argue about sort of like cultural appropriation, all that kind of stuff there. But the man's had a great career and he's also the definitive Dracula as well. Oh my God, Christopher Lee. Now on this occasion, this is obviously a role that doesn't have a whole bunch of sequels associated with it. It's one and done kind of thing. But once again, he's playing the bad guy. And I'm going to say that for... 50 years, if you wanted a bad guy, Sir Christopher Lee could bring it home, okay? And so, the situation is kind of nice. There's this place called Summer Isle. It's of an unknown location, presumably Scotland, and indeed it was filmed in Galloway, Scotland. A little bit more on that in a moment. But what happens is, Edward Woodward is the new police officer to basically deal with the locals. So he's new to the area, and he's a good Christian man, he's unmarried, he's basically just a nice guy who's sent to do his job. And it is very much set up that this man takes his religion seriously, and he's taking the whole thing very seriously. He's obviously the perfect person to be a police officer, because he absolutely is going to follow the law. When he arrives there, he notices the locals, well, they're just a bit different. Not in any kind of, oh, they're aliens sort of way, but they clearly have their own thing going when it comes to religion. And Christopher Lee seems to be the local community leader, let's call him that. And what's absolutely brilliant about this is there's just this growing dread and weirdness. And it's sort of very much linked into the kind of mother goddess that kind of idea of paganism, sort of like this getting back to nature, the weird sisters with W-Y-R-D, that kind of thing. And it's very much taking the sort of neo-pagan ideals. Now, I am actually planning on doing 
a whole episode potentially on things like sort of pseudoscience stuff like crystals and zodiacs and things like that so i don't want to go too much into the idea of like healing and things like that that's a that's a whole other thing but this idea of this kind of locked away community that seem to have their own religion and they all seem nice but it's clearly going somewhere well i don't want to sort of give away the ending but weirdly the ending is also the name of the movie and if you've ever seen a picture of it if you do a google search then invariably what's going to pop up is the thing you see at the end and it's one of these things where it's like oh that's it, it's very clever it's a horror movie which is about atmosphere rather than jump scares and it's just also very british it would not instantly make sense to make it in america and set it in new york it just it just wouldn't work at all you could imagine it might be set in iceland or somewhere like that it's got to be somewhere a bit wild where there isn't a lot of people around and where that history could have lingered if you like so all of that together means that this is one of the most atmospheric movies you're probably ever going to see i mentioned how it couldn't be made in america that's not going to stop America trying to remake other countries' movies. And in 2006, The Wicker Man was renamed with the name The Wicker Man, and it starred Nicolas Cage. It's widely considered one of the worst Nicolas Cage movies, and the bit at the end, in this case, Nicolas Cage is kind of killed by having, not making this up, basically having a kind of wicker thing put over his head full of bees that kind of sting him but the wicker isn't particularly thick so the bees could absolutely get out of it and oh yeah they decided not to use actual bees because you can't just cover an actor an oscar winning actor's head like nicholas cage with bees so it's cgi it's not the best cgi it's also cgi from 2006 so it's aged like leaving milk out in the sun for three days and he's doing this very over-the-top Nicolas Cage performance, shouting, not the bees, not the bees. And it's a whole meme. It's even referenced in Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent in passing. And Nicolas Cage goes, oh, people didn't get it. It was all meant to be a comedy all the way through. Well, if that's true, why are you going to turn a horror movie into a comedy? It's just bad. It's just really bad. Now, admittedly, they sort of reset it to sort of like the bayou, that kind of thing, you know, sort of in Mississippi, where, again, there's sort of things like voodoo and stuff like that. So, you know, they, they were trying to sort of like find their own way. But you just can't remake a classic. You, you know, if you, you know, you get something like Yojimbo, which is an amazing samurai film by Akira Kurosawa, and it gets remade very effectively into A Fistful of Dollars, but they did change it with, like, cowboys and stuff like that. You know, they took the basic plot, the basic good idea, the basic story, and then turned it into its own American thing, whereas they really didn't try turning it into its own American thing with The Wicker Man 2006. So, 73 version, stone-cold classic, 2006 version, hot garbage, okay? But it absolutely influences things. There's Midsummer which is uh, a far more recent low-budget movie, which, again, is something to do with a sort of like a, a pagan community. And again, there's this slowly creeping dread of this woman sort of like going there and sort of realising it's getting all a bit intense. That, if you like, takes the spirit of something like The Wicker Man and creates very much its own thing, and it works magnificently. It's one of the best-reviewed 
recent horror films out there. And just like the original, it's kind of, it's about atmosphere, not about blood and guts or about sort of like jump scares all over the place. Now, I did mention it was filmed in Galloway, Scotland, and this is where I have to introduce the female role, the, the temptress, if you like, amongst everybody, who's played by Britt Eklund in her, how can I put this politely, in her physical prime. Britt Eklund, 1970s Britt Eklund, wow, okay, I'm just going to say that, okay, and she obviously was a Bond girl as well, but she's from Sweden, and there is this scene where you've got the police officer, he's on one side of the door, and you've got Britt Eklund, like, dancing seductively, completely naked, you can only see her from behind, on the other side of the door. Now, what's slightly annoying is, completely understandably, Britt Eklund didn't want to do that scene. She shouldn't be made to do anything she feels uncomfortable with, so she, they got a body double. Now, the other bo the body double is, I'm sure, a lovely young lady. But she's not built like Britt Eklund, okay? That's problem there. So... That's just weird, all right? But it's also necessary, and it's how you do filmmaking, and hashtag me too, and nobody needs to be sort of put in any uncomfortable or sort of like sexualized positions or anything like that. I get it, fine, but it doesn't work, okay? Or they should have got a closer body double to her body double. And if you like, the whole element of this is to do with kind of the fertility side of things. Indeed, there is the scene. It's got lots of weird scenes like this where there's a woman with an egg in hand nursing a baby in a graveyard. What? It's it's not explained in any way, but the director, Robin Hardy, 10 out of 10 to him for being able to do so much with so little and to create an absolute classic, he was outright in saying that's also to do with fertility. It's kind of implying that the woman might have had a number of stillborn, something like that. And so, you know, she's trying to sort of like bring back her fertility and conquer the death in the graveyard and that kind of thing and that sort of stuff it makes kind of makes sense and so Britt Eklund kind of trying to seduce Edward Woodward that also sort of like the fertility element as well so it is paying into some of these tropes or familiar themes to do with this kind of paganism or neo-paganism idea but going back to it Britt Eklund Swedish and after filming in Galloway Scotland she was asked what she thought of the area and her quote was, it's the bleakest place on earth, which I'm going to say is pretty cheeky of her because Sweden isn't renowned for its lush and verdant areas. I mean, it's huge, it's beautiful, but Scotland isn't as bleak as Sweden, particularly in Sweden in the winter, okay? And it ended up meaning that the, the film producers actually had to apologize for that comment. So there we go. There is one thing that I've got to sort of point out that sadly because this you know it wasn't a mega hit at the time it did decent box office in the UK like I said it was filmed on a typical British 1970s shoestring budget it wasn't particularly well looked after so the original cut we know is over 90 minutes and nobody seemed to be able to find one that gets to 90 minutes so there are number of different assembly cuts some of them are really quite truncated but at the very least i guess if you're curious about this if this sounds like an interesting film you're not going to waste a lot of your time because it's definitely under 90 minutes and so it, it and if you like that adds an element of cachet we know certain scenes have been lost there seems to have been a speech that christopher lee makes about an apple but we 
don't have that in the film at the moment. So there we go. That's the wonderful world of the Wicker Man. And so this leads us clearly into the world of paganism. And obviously the film is this kind of tension between Christianity and paganism. And so I want to start with basically the biggest cliche, and then I'm going to go backwards in time. The biggest cliche, and this is why I keep referring to neo-paganism, is this idea that pagan ideas, pre-Christian religion, was kind of preserved in small communities on the edges of civilization, on the edges of Europe or whatever, for a thousand years. So that by the time we go past the Renaissance, uh, this stuff has been rediscovered by writers, that it's original and real and has been untainted, if you like, by Christianity. And that didn't happen. This is, if you like, a bit of pagan. When people start criticizing Christianity or other major religions for their propaganda, of saying, oh, you think you're always the best or whatever, which is true. You can level, the, level those things against Christianity. But you know what? You can level them against every single religion. When people talk about how wonderful Tibet was under the Dalai Lama system and how Buddhism is so incredibly peaceful, that's true to a certain extent, but it is also worth remembering that the punishment for theft was basically to be skinned alive, which, you know, most Western uh, Buddhists would, I'm going to assume, be against. So, you know, like I say, there's you're never going to find 100% nice here. And so the reality is, when it comes to these pagan ideals, is we can argue that certain echoes of it have been preserved in European Christian rites and rituals, but there is simply no evidence anywhere. If people want to say, oh, it was handed down verbally, you know, father to son or mother to daughter, or whatever, it's like, okay, but you, at some point it would have been written down. At some point these rituals would have been recorded somewhere. And there's nothing. Basically, everybody was pagan, and then the Christians come in, and there is a period of mixture in the Roman era. But by the time we get to, let's say, the reign of Richard the Lionheart in the late 1100s, there's nothing. There's no indication whatsoever, at all, anywhere, except in one part, but we'll come on to that in, in a minute in terms of sort of proper history stuff, and you'll realize it's quite different to what we're talking about here with sort of like midwives dealing with cheese and things like that. So I've got some different ideas. This is, oh, while I did the research for this, is, yeah, I could do an episode on witches, and yeah, I could do something on like neo-paganism and like spirituality and crystal healing and stuff like that. So there might be a few more of these coming up in the future, but I want to put it fundamentally that we don't start getting these kind of rituals and things like that until we basically get into the age of enlightenment, when we're basically getting people pushing against the ideas of Christianity and, in essence, making up stuff. And so, yes, these rituals may be hundreds of years old, but they're not in any way linked to the actual Iron Age pagans of Britain from 2,000 years ago. There's just too much of a gap there. You don't remember stuff. And I'm even going to be contradictory here and say, even if people did hand it down 
mother to daughter from the Bronze Age or Iron Age up to the modern-ish era. People change things, you know, it, if you've not written it down, it's through memory, and memory is flawed, so there's no way it's going to be reproducing actual Iron Age druidic rituals and things like that. Come on, people, use your brains. Now, if you are a neo-pagan, and if you sort of like believe all this stuff, great, that's a religion. I can't tell a Christian to stop being Christian or a Muslim to stop being Muslim. So I'm not going to tell you to stop being, you know, you can talk. The thing about faith is you can't. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Argue with it. You believe. And no amount of facts are going to get in the way of your belief. But similarly, don't tell me that your belief is fact. It isn't. It is not the same thing as a history book or a chronicle or a record or archaeological evidence. You've got nothing. You've got nothing to back that up. But you be you. You're a magnificent creature. So now that I've talked about, in essence, the middle bit of this story, let's go back to the beginning bit of this story. The word pagan was never once used by any religion that used the name pagan or did a different religion. Basically, paganism was specifically a word created in the 4th century AD, so in the 300s, at the time when the Roman Empire became Christianized, and it was used by Christians in the Roman Empire to describe people who followed polytheism. So 
any kind of religion that had multiple deities. So that would have been the ancient Greeks or the ancient Egyptians or indeed the Romans up until you get Constantine and that whole thing. Or indeed Hindus. They were obviously contemporary with these people as well. And the idea was it was not meant to be a compliment. And the thing is, we've got some religions, like, for example, the ancient Egyptian religion, where there is no name for it at all. We just call it the ancient Egyptian religion. Or indeed, we might even use the word paganism. But paganism is an incredibly useless word, because whereas if you are a polytheist and you believe in all these different gods, it's on the one hand, it leads to no religious fighting. It's like, oh, you got a god of war that's called Ares. OK, well, you got a god of war called Mars. And oh, hi, Egypt, you also got a god of war called Horus. So, you know, in that situation, it's like there's no point arguing. It's just your language means you call it something different. But we all kind of believe in the same thing. There's no right way to believe in this. We'll just slap another god into the pantheon. That's absolutely fine. It's once you start believing in one true god then you're going to get very angry with the people who don't believe in that one true God. And indeed, pretty quickly, paganism had a sort of second meaning as well, which was basically religion of the peasants. And the thing is, when Constantine basically made the Roman Empire, or made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, everybody did not immediately become Christian. We've even got a later emperor, about a generation later, called Julian the Apostate. And the reason why he was called the Apostate is because he tried to bring the old pagan religion back into the Roman world. And had he not died basically in battle, then he, he might well have been able to do it. But because he died so quickly, it meant that the Constantinian reforms basically stuck. But it just shows you that it wasn't a done deal. As I've said on many times before, my favourite quote that I kind of created myself, the problem with history is we look at it the wrong way around. What I mean by that is we look at the end outcome and therefore we think it was always going to happen that way. But certainly in the 300s AD, it was not a done deal that Christianity would win when it came to the, the Roman world. There were still millions of pagans after Constantine decreed this. And it's worth pointing out he himself was pagan right up until he was on his deathbed. That's when he finally got christened, which isn't generally a sign of a true believer. By the time we get to the Middle Ages, pagan literally applies to anything that's non-Christian. So literally, you'll get Christian chroniclers during the Crusades describing Muslims as pagan. They weren't. <laughs> Simple as that. In other words, you're following a false god is kind of what it means. Pagan is an insult, and it absolutely does not take into account the myriad of different religions and cultures out there. It's why we talk about the Vikings being pagan, even though that religion, you know, with the whole Thor and Odin and Loki and all that kind of stuff, that actually started forming after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. It was, you know, centuries old by the time the Vikings started attacking England, for example. But the thing is, it wasn't a thousand years old or, or that sort of thing. So again, it's not really doing credit where credit's due, in essence. So yes, if we want to talk about, let's say, one and a half thousand years ago, there were elements of non-Christian belief throughout Western Europe. A great example of that, if we do go back about 1,500 years, 
a long time ago. Two years ago, I did an episode on Sutton Who, which is my single most favourite burial site in the world or archaeological site in the world. It's just what got me into archaeology in the first place. Ooh, I've always loved it. But that's a classic example of the tensions between Christianity and non-Christianity in England in the 500s. Because what we've got there is a site which is clearly non-Christian. You don't bury a ship. You don't have coins for the phantom rowers to take you into the afterworld. None of this is required if you're Christian. And oh yeah, there's no body there. But at the same time, there are literally two christening spoons, one with Saul and one with Paul written on it. And also there are a number of other items with the cross on it as well. So it's a bit of a mixed bag in terms of is this 100% Christian or 100% pagan, to use that term. And the answer is it's a bit of both. And so the other thing, as I said, is it's unique in burials because there's no body there and the body is not rotted away, nor has it been grave robbed as well because if it had been grave robbed all the cool gold stuff would have been stolen there is a theory it can only be a theory that maybe the person who died had the old way rituals with all their stuff to please the old gods and possibly they had a christian burial themselves to basically please the new god and that's not a bad idea but again that's 500 ADs, and that's therefore, you know, nearly half a millennia before we get someone like William the Conqueror turning up. There's a whole load of time for these old ways to fade away and be forgotten. Indeed, you get one of one of the last Anglo-Saxon kings, Edward the Confessor. You know, he was crowned in 1050. He was so religious, he was on his way to becoming a saint. So that shows you how Christian the Anglo-Saxons were by the end of the Anglo-Saxon era, again some 500 years later, give or take. What we then need to look at, weirdly, is the Crusades. Now, the Crusades have cropped up in a number of episodes. Maybe I should do a whole episode on them, but then again, can one episode possibly do it justice? That's hard to say. But here, anyway, the point is this. When I say the Crusades, I know what sticks in your head. You're talking about knights fighting the Turks in the Middle East, sand, Islam, Christianity, scimitars, guys with white tabards on with red crosses and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah, that absolutely happened. That happened for 200 years. But the Crusades didn't only happen in the Holy Land. The longest singular crusade is called the Albigensian Crusade, which happened in southern France against what the church considered, the pope considered, heretics, these groups called the Cathars. Now, this has got increasingly murky as time's gone by. It's like, well, how formalized were the Cathars? You know, how much made up or propaganda was it created by the papacy? I don't, I don't know. But just to keep things simple, these people believed in a different version of Christianity, and that wasn't good enough. They weren't taking orders from the pope. Right, send in the troops. And it was horrifically violent. They didn't scrimp on the violence. It wasn't like, well, these are our fellow brother white Christians in France. No, these northern French knights absolutely massacred, quite literally, these southern French people. That's the single longest singular crusade. But then the longest period of crusading was not in the Holy Land. It was in the north of Europe. 
and they become known, these period of fighting has become known as the Northern Crusades, and you can argue that they are the single most successful crusades out of all of them. Because in this really counterintuitive statement, the Christian knights, particularly things like the Teutonic Knights, so there's the military orders, everybody's heard of the Templars, but the biggest one was the Hospitallers, and the third biggest one was the Teutonic Knights. And the Teutonic Knights did indeed fight in the Holy Land, but actually their real power base and where they spent most of their time, particularly after the fall of the Holy Land, was in Northern Europe. Teutonic is another word for Germanic in, in the West now, and yet they were very different back in the day. So you've got these, if you don't know what the religious orders were or the holy orders were, they lived like monks. They, you know, reported in basically to the Pope rather than to a local landowner. They had a vow of poverty and chastity, but rather than sitting around praying, they fought for God. And so they had the best equipment, you know, the Catholic Church is going to have all the money and therefore they had the best equipment. They had heavy armor and heavy, heavy cavalry. And these guys were absolutely terrifying. And the creme de la creme in terms of training, in terms of motivation, in terms of equipment that you could get in the whole of Europe. And they actually clashed against the Mongols and were absolutely annihilated at the Battle of Liegnitz. That's in the middle of the 1200s. So anyway, the point here is this. They started spreading north into what is now modern day parts of Poland, and then on into Estonia and Latvia, and then pushing east into, again, modern-day Belarus. So, I, when I was writing about this in my book, I've, I've actually written a book about the Crusades called Deus Vult, A Concise History of the Crusades. It's got excellent reviews. If you want an overview of the entire crusading movement, read that. I'm very still very proud of it. But when I started putting chunks of it online, I always remember... I said, look, basically the reason why Eastern Poland is Christianized is because of the Northern Crusades. And I had this one Polish guy furious with me over that point. So I want to be quite clear on this. I am well aware that one of the most devout and Catholic countries in Europe today is Poland. And Poland has an incredibly proud and long history. But at some point, Christianity had to be introduced into Poland. It wasn't there 3,000 years ago because, do you know what? Jesus hadn't been born yet. And so, also, Jesus was born in the Middle East. So somebody had to bring the message into Poland at some point. And indeed, it was brought into some areas at the point of a sword. If you go back a few centuries earlier, well, I'm talking about the 1100s now, by the way, in Poland. But if we talk about the late 700s into the early 800s, we've got Charlemagne, that great guy who owned basically all of France, all of Germany, and a little bit of northern Italy as well. He's sort of like recreating the Roman Empire. He spent an inordinate amount of time fighting the Saxons in Saxony, a part that nowadays is very German and used to be very Christian. And yeah, they were all pagan. So the point is, paganism was actually alive and well well into the Middle Ages, but not necessarily in the places you might think. They weren't in little hamlets in, let's say, Norfolk in England. Instead, they were in Northern Europe. And what's interesting is by now, once we're into the 1100s, uh, moving into the 1200s, the places which you'd think would be pagan, i.e. Denmark and Norway, were in fact very Christian. The 
biggest area was in the Eastern Baltic area, where, not like I say, modern day Latvia and Estonia. Indeed, Estonia was the first pagan area to be really hit hard by the Northern Crusade. So these would have been crusaders from the likes of Denmark and Germany. There would have been a few people from um, likes of Scotland, England, France as well getting involved. And indeed, once the Crusades had finished in the Holy Land, but you still wanted to go on crusade, let's say the year is 1300 or 1350, well, place to go would be out into Estonia or out into Belarusia. And so, obviously, it wasn't called that back in those days. Novgorod was the area. And again, I might be angering people who are Ukrainian or Belarusian or, or Russian indeed, uh, but it is worth reminding these people that the Orthodox Christianity that got into the area, again, had to get in there at some point. You were something else before that, and you were this sort of Slavic paganism, which goes well into the 1200s. However, by the time you get the really famous Alexander Nevsky, who fights the Teutonic Knights on the famous Lake Priapus, or the Battle of the Frozen Lake, he, you know, ne Nevsky, and we're now into later, after the pagan, he absolutely was, was Orthodox Christian. But then again, the Crusaders kind of didn't care about these nuances, which had been proved in the Fourth Crusade, around about 1204, because, yeah, they'd already sacked Constantinople, which was full of Orthodox Christians in there. So it just shows you that it gets a little bit complicated in this but the battle of lake priapus by the way is this amazing thing when where you've got nevsky in essence having less of everything against as i said the creme de la creme the teutonic knights with all their armor and everything else and so what he did is he goaded them onto this frozen lake now in one regard a frozen lake is perfect for heavy cavalry it's flat there's nowhere to hide it's basically going to flatten nevsky's army but what did he know? He knew that there was an area of thin ice, and these men on heavy horses, covered in armour, it was just a brilliant tactical move. In essence, the Teutonic Knights charged, it failed because they started falling into the water, and they just sank to the bottom of the lake. Huge victory for Novgorod, huge humiliation for uh, the Teutonic Knights. And so there was another time, uh, probably about, uh, you know, a few generations later, the Battle of Tannenberg, uh, which, you know, if you're in England, you've never heard of the Battle of Tannenberg. Again, just cutting a long story short, it was one of these things where the Novgorodian forces, the Slavic forces had less of everything, the Teutonic Knights had more, and through clever tactics, they end up winning again. To show you how sore the Germans were about the Battle of Tannenberg is when they ended up fighting in World War One, and the first major clash between Germany and Imperial Russia, and it was a crushing victory for the Germans, and it was just down the road, the Germans deliberately called it the Second Battle of Tannenberg. Because even though they were separated by four, five hundred years in terms of when these two events happened, it was just a way to say, haha, we finally got our revenge on the Slavic peoples. So, you can see this all evolves into just sort of nationalism or, you know, different flavors of Christianity beating each other up. But it's worth, as I said, I mean, literally in the 1100s, Estonia was full of people who did not believe in Christianity. They believed in worshipping lakes. They had spiritual soothsaying horses and things like that. If you think that's ridiculous, well, you know, have you ever checked your horoscope? 
you know, so it's it was a different time, a different place. But what was interesting is once Estonia got hit so hard by this, the fascinating thing, as I find, is they converted hard into Christianity and Estonia then became a bulwark for the Teutonic Knights to then push on into other parts of the Baltic. And I, and I said, so like further into what would be modern day Belarusia. And so we have this state run by the Teutonic Knights, which covers a huge swath of sort of like modern day Poland and then on into the Baltic states and then further east, which was ruled not by a king, but by basically the Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights. This goes on into basically the Protestant Reformation time, into the 1500s. And so, you know, it's absolutely a hangover from the Crusades. And there are some people who do a sort of like dotted line from the Teutonic territories into this idea of the militaristic Prussians. And indeed, a lot of the Prussian territory happens to coexist with this Teutonic area. Make of that what you will. It could be coincidence. It could be something inured in the local aristocracy as like, if in doubt, go to war. Might is right, etc. But it does show you that paganism survived in Europe for perhaps longer than you ever may think. But again, I want to remind you that every time you use that word, it's pejorative. It's not meant to be complimentary, and it doesn't respect the fact that Hinduism is completely different to the Scandinavian gods of, like, Thor and Loki, etc. And so, if you're saying it, you're actually using a bit of Christian propaganda. So, there we go, Teresa. Thank you so much for giving this an idea. I've had lots of fun researching it. I'm at GemDaduchu on Twitter, as always. Tell me what you think. Let me know uh, what your views are and give me ideas if you want to throw them my way. Always appreciative of those. And as always, another episode coming soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.